You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, I'm here to share with you Marcus Barnes in conversation with the enigmatic DJ, Andrew Grant. What I was following in my heart felt right and everything felt natural. I was following the the, the beat and the, the culture and I just thought something tells me I'm doing the right thing, even though I didn't have a lot of material things. I didn't have much money. I didn't have much clothes, but I had a box of records and a decent pair of headphones. And I felt like I was doing the right thing in, in, my, in my mind. If I wanted to get further in the music business or the music culture, then I was doing the right thing. Raised in the US and perhaps best known for his lengthy Ibiza residencies, Andrew Grant has so far led a full and incredibly varied life as a lacrosse teacher, hip-hop DJ, US Marine, DC-10 enthusiast, and so much more. In this very rare conversation, recorded a few weeks ago, you'll hear all about how Andrew wasn't allowed to listen to the radio growing up, his experience of teaching lacrosse in Sheffield, buying a one-way ticket to Ibiza in 2001, and even his stint operating the lights at DC-10. Enjoy this one, it is really special. This is Andrew Grant on RA's Exchange. So hi everybody, I'm Marcus Barnes. Welcome to the RA Exchange. It's Monday the 22nd of November 2021. And I'm joined on Zoom by Andrew Grant, who is the musical director, director of music and radio at Eaton DC in Washington, DC. He's got a very fascinating uh, backstory and we're gonna work through some of his timeline right now during the course of this conversation. Andrew, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for asking me to join, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, man. Although, uh, as we both discussed before we started recording, Slightly under the weather, both of us, but um, we will persevere through the chat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I've I've hung out with you um, over a number of days uh, a few years ago, and so many of the things that you were talking about were just absolutely fascinating. You've been involved in some very um, iconic brands, shall we say, over the years. Um, but I wanted to go right back to the beginning before we get into the. The other sort of meteor stuff, I suppose. Um, what was your first kind of connection with music and where did you grow up? Well, I, I grew up in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland, in, in the United States. And my some of my first real connection, I guess, would be with with house music, Baltimore club music in in the city whether it was basement boys or listening to the radio uh, late at night i think that would be my first kind of intro into the dance scene if you say mm. and what kind of era are we talking about here that would be the mid to late 80s oh nice okay and so 
why did you kind of gravitate towards listening to the radio and what was it about dance music house music in particular that resonated with you well i was listening to the radio because i wasn't allowed to so it seems like yeah <laughs> uh, it seemed like the uh, the cool thing to do um there would be djs late at night on the different radio stations playing playing a combination of baltimore club and and house music and equally back then mtv actually used to used to show music videos and mm -hmm. there was a particular music video it was the uh it was the basement boys um gypsy woman mm -hmm. with uh crystal waters that kind of um kind of called to me in a way and uh it was a very uh it was commercially successful record so it was on the the tv quite a lot and i thought wow the these cats are from baltimore that's so that's so cool that they're on tv and they have a music video and they're they're making music and i wonder how they made the music and mm. and what what process that kind of took even though a lot of my friends were listening to hip-hop and i was also listening to hip-hop and artists like ll cool j or mm. or the beastie boys that were kind of prominent during that era and then then my older brother and his, his friends they were listening to heavy metal and then church on sundays so there's gospel <laughs> there's definitely gospel in there as well um but this uh, i think this unique um background in in music at the time kind of just uh gave, gave me a, a a beautiful palette to be able to to choose from yeah right and so what what was home life like then if you if you, you said that you weren't listen allowed to listen to the radio like what was was that under sort of strict instructions from your parents or yeah i i think growing up in a baptist household uh there are certain restrictions or rules that are set um both my parents were were heavy in the into the the church community and we weren't uh we weren't supposed to listen to the radio and i would i would stay up late whether i would go to a friend's house or even in my own house i actually had a <laughs> I had a, a, a Smurf uh, cassette player <laughs> that my aunt had given me one year for, for Christmas, I think it was. Um, so I used to listen to it on that um, literally at midnight and 1 a.m. There was, there was Morgan State Radio, WEAA, which would play the most underground hip-hop or... 92q djs like frank ski that were that were playing this baltimore club style and and yeah these rules were i guess my my parents didn't want us to listen to the radio because it was not uh mm. not appropriate to to listen to the radio wow man and so what was it like for you um i mean obviously i guess there's there's not very you don't really have anything to compare to but, but i guess like maybe going to like friends houses mate did you notice much of a difference in how it was in their households compared to your own yeah um, even though most of the, the the friends houses that i was going to they um their their parents were also in the church community whether it was our church or another church um there there was sometimes a a bit of a, a difference um 
but I, I don't think it was necessarily because their their parents were, weren't allowing them to listen to the radio. I think it was just a maybe they they explored a little bit more because they had an older brother an older sister as well mm. that were were maybe into that and yeah my my mother and my father I, I i love them to death don't get me wrong um but they were they were a little bit more uh stringent i guess <laughs> and uh what was baltimore like at that time Baltimore at that time is as much like it is now in a way that it's a tough city and you have to you have to really work hard and yeah it was maybe not uh, the the most houses uh, aren't occupied you know there's a lot of derelict housing and and unfortunately um, not a lot of jobs but it's a it's still a beautiful city in its own way and and has a has a certain type of character that you don't find on the east coast or in the united states at all mm. yeah man I, i've got such fond memories of being in baltimore i really have and um you know obviously you, you showed me around and um yeah it's funny because like uh, i always think back to being there and just think i really really liked it there because it felt so much more grounded and down to earth than other places that i've been to in the states yeah it's true it's true it has a has a beautiful character and unlike new york or philadelphia one of the original cities on the east coast that still holds a a real trueness about it about it all mm. And what what is Baltimore Club? There might be people that are listening to this podcast and they're kind of like going, What's, what does he mean, Baltimore Club? <laughs> I, I would suggest looking it up. It's it's faster, um, lots of vocals, repetitive vocals, um, lots of cut-up beats and samples. And um yeah, I would I would highly recommend looking it up on YouTube because it has its own flavor, much like Go Go in DC has its own flavor. There are there are uniquenesses about that specific genre. As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about Doodoo Brown. <laughs> yeah, Doodoo Doodoo Brown is is one of the popular one. Ghost in this house, uh, North Avenue, the birds, the bees. There's 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 some good cuts out there that have become a, a little bit popular over mm. the years. Yeah, and just just as Baltimore has its own unique identity as as a city, like it also has its own unique identity in terms of the music there. And even up until now, there's there's lots of artists coming out there that just got their own spin. And obviously, like you know the 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 local accent is quite particular as well, and that sort of feeds into you know especially like in hip hop and stuff. Yeah, I, I would agree. Even not just Baltimore Club, but Baltimore has its own style of house music with with the Basement Boys, and then the glitch techno scene also has a has a large base there. Maybe possibly could have been created from that uh, artist community that you find in in the Hopkins area that the these the students were were taking techno but using these glitch patterns to to produce their own events and, and sound mm. yeah man it's absolutely fascinating 
Um, talking about your um, your early years, how did you um, start to sort of get out of the house and get get out there experiencing the clubs? Well, I I was about 15 or 16 years old and I got my driver's license and I had to, well, another rule was that I had to be home at 1159 <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, I didn't listen to that too much either. So we used to go to clubs around the different Baltimore area and, and, I, I was always the one driving my friends. So we, we would go there and stay till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, sometimes uh, listening to local DJs and each night, whether it was a Wednesday or Thursday or even a Sunday night had a different type of party that they weren't too, they weren't too tough on, on checking IDs for some reason. It seemed it seemed if you were cool and you wanted to dance and get your life on, then you could go there and find find a nice party. So that's uh, that's probably when I started getting a little bit more actually into the physical clubs and then going to the record stores, trying to talk to the DJs and, and hang out with them and or the radio stations. I mentioned Frank Ski before. That's someone that... I would go to the radio station and, and get some of the promo records that they weren't using because the back then it was there were no CD players, so <laughs> the only outlets um, to 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 be able to play this music were were twelve inches. So the the vinyl promo companies would would send these artists five, six, seven, ten copies of a record. Right. And they were they were very kind to 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 either give me a copy or friends a copy or the local record store some copies as well, and that's when I started to I, I was I was actually I used to cut lawns, and yeah. I'd saved up my money to get my first um, belt driven BDs Gemini Gemini belt driven turntables, and uh, it was all battle style because our my my room wasn't that big, so I had to turn the records battle style in order to fit them in in my room even. <laughs> and uh, two channel, two channel mixer. I think it only had high and bass. I don't even think there was some <laughs> mid on there, honestly. So I see I see some of these, <laughs> I see some of these people that are DJing now with twenty CDJs and and uh, the sophisticated mixers, and it, it really it, it makes me laugh because I know that it really only started on two turntables and a mixer yeah with two two channel mixer so it's um it was it was a different moment altogether and so um it was i'm i'm assuming then even at that point that there was some ambition in you to be a dj if you have if you'd saved up to get that set up even if it was just djing in your bedroom yeah i i don't know yeah, I guess there was some ambition to to pursue music in general. Um, music music ha, ha, had always been a part of uh, my family in, in some way, but dance music obviously was a little bit more just through, through the radio and MTV. Mm. I never I never expected myself to become a a DJ 
professional DJ. I, I, I thought that sometimes friends would come over, we put some records on, and it was a combination. It would be Baltimore Club or, or De La Soul record and, hmm. and whatever else. Uh, we, we had our, our collection of 10 to 15 records that we had. We, we could play those for six hours, and it was still cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I never, I never thought that I could or that I wanted to become a professional DJ that, um, that didn't come until my first rave, like real legitimate rave that happened, um, next to the, the warehouse tower in, in the city on the North side of the city. We, a friend of mine, we went to a record store uh, called modern music it used to be on a place called Reed street in Baltimore. And, we went there to to get some tickets for this rave and i didn't i was thinking wow uh, what is this and we 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 get to this warehouse and it's it's probably close to 800 900 people and the dj was on a three or four tiered scaffold and i thought wow this is i've never seen anything like this before mm. and it was a combination of acid house and happy hardcore and and some some trance also and it's something that i i didn't know even existed and that that was really the first moment for me that i thought i i would like to do that that would be cool to be able to play for a couple hundred people that's that's pretty it's pretty badass yeah man and there's i I can hear when you're talking about it, there's a, a distinction between Baltimore's clubs that you were frequenting and then the rave. And it seems like not only is there um, a distinction between the general kind of atmosphere and maybe the, um, the amount of people there, but also the type of music that was being played. Completely, completely. In the, in the club, it was, it was fun because you would go there and you would dance and, and, uh, and hang out with your friends, of course. But the the rave was a, a full on experience in such a such a way. There was different vendors selling some clothing. I remember, and there was one of these. I, I don't even know what you call it, where the people kind of get in this machine and it spins around and, <laughs> and, it, and it goes like you know three sixty and upside down. And there was there was people with hula hoops and 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 little like rings of fire and stuff like that and it was just it was like a carnival mm. it was almost like a carnival but then there was this dj in the middle of the carnival um so it was very it was something different completely different than the controlled club environment and what what were the clubs um that you were going to what were they like and um what were the some of the the more sort of prominent clubs uh promoters and and djs as well that were you know the at the forefront i guess of what was happening at that time i think the most the the biggest one that was happening in baltimore was the paradox that has gone a couple through a couple different uh different hands over the years it's not even it's just a parking lot now it's a, it's going to become another venue 
Um, it's it's down by the stadium. I think Paradox was really the most prominent um, club as far as e- either events in general, DJs in general. They would they were doing house music there as well. Um, but the, the the clubs that I were going to have really come and gone they were they were quite uh quite a lot of turnover throughout the years mm-hmm. and the the events that were happening within baltimore at, at the different raves were were warehouses illegal 100 percent illegal they, they they had no permission to be there or be doing those events but that was um i think that was part of the thing in the 90s that was coming from from europe really um but the these these larger raves were were something that the united states even though house music and and techno were originated in the states um it's the 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 rave culture was exported back into to this to this community Mm. yeah man and what um what about um the was there much of a difference in terms of the the crowds that you would find at the the illegal raves and then at the the clubs around baltimore 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. the people in the clubs were they were going to get their hair done the, the the day before the day of um dressed to the tee uh, some people were wearing suits to the to the club to to go yeah to go dance or dresses and um it, it was kind of like a a a show of who's who what's what and then the rave was a little bit more come as you are uh enjoy yourself uh respect everybody's space even though that was also in the club there was there was um there was still a little bit of a toughness in in the club that was always there but in the in the in the rave scene or, or dance scene it seemed a little a lot more friendlier actually a lot more hugs being given mm-hmm. and um it didn't matter how you dressed actually you know where, where the baggiest pants that you could find probably and the baggiest t-shirt you can find and, and just come and and hang out so the the different uh i think you would ask which dj so I, whether it was somebody like a DJ Vince or or Frank Ski that were DJing the Baltimore Club, they they created this atmosphere. There was kind of like sexy and and mature and come dressed to the T, wear 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 a nice suit. And the 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 rave scene with with artists like DJ Sun or 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 Lonnie Fisher they they kind of created this scene where you could come no matter what you look like or acted like as long as you were cool and respected one another um just kind of come and and hang out Mm. and so what um how were you dressing at that time were you dressing to sort of um (laughs) to get into the clubs or to the raves or were you sort of switching it up for either it de- yeah, it depended which one I was going to, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but I, I do remember I had a tracksuit. I had a tracksuit that seemed to work in both locations or <laughs> whatever, whatever location um, that, that we could we could go to. Uh, um, I can't I, 
I can't remember the name of the store that I bought. It was something like a Kmart. It wasn't anything fancy, but I remember, I remember Diodora or Adidas had the exact same version and I had bought the off-brand one and uh, it was, um, it was, uh, it had, it had worn its welcome after a couple of shows, um, needless to say, but, uh, that, that, that's what I was, that's what I was wearing. It was purple and pink and white. And, uh, yeah, I think I had, uh, I think I had a pair of blue filas that I would wear with it as well. Cool. So that, that seemed to work in, in, in both locations. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and what was it like for you, um, you know, being, being of, of that age where, you know, like mid to late teens, you're getting involved in something that you feel passionate about. You're, you're meeting people who are quite influential within that community. You're, you're starting to get hold of the music. If you've got your DJ set up, it must've been really exciting to just be, you know, uh, getting involved in this world and then ingratiating yourself to people that are quite influential in that scene as well. Yeah, it was very, very unique moment. I was collecting this music, sometimes making, actually a lot of times making mixtapes. I don't know if they were any good, but I was making mixtapes and giving them to friends at school and having them listen to them or even them take them to other house parties and we, we would listen to them there because their parents had cassette decks and it was yeah a very unique moment no, nice. nobody had cell phones they couldn't just bring up soundcloud or mixcloud on a whim yeah. <laughs> and what about um lonnie fisher is a name that i've heard uh, from other sources um do, I, I take it as like he was quite pivotal in that that rave scene yeah lonnie was maybe the the nucleus that that scott henry and feel good and dj sun and 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 the basement boys to some extent even though they had their own thing going on uh the lonnie lonnie had over the years uh gotten more and more into the the promoter side of things and then uh, started opening up ve different venues and even though like i said there was there was quite a bit of turnover sometimes within a year mm. they were they were always known as you know what's lonnie opening next and mm. the djs wanted to play there and even into the, the the drum and bass scene or diesel boy and and dara the these these kind of like early dnb or jungle artists were coming down and uh, he was doing really A to Z, not so much Baltimore Club or even hip hop, but A to Z of dance music at the time. Uh, Acid Jazz was big and I mentioned drum and bass, house, mm -hmm. techno, Acid House. So Lonnie definitely had his finger on the, the pulse as far as DC promoters in that, in that genre, mm -hmm. in those genres. And I remember, I remember hearing about um, there was some pretty legendary. Uh, was it uh, boat parties as well? Yeah, yeah, there was definitely some legendary boat parties. They were. I also don't know if they were legal, but <laughs> but it, it seemed to go along with everything that Baltimore was was about. And um, he he would do the, these different boat parties because of the harbor there. Many many people know that. The, they have a harbor, so he would have these double-decker boats 
much like you 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 see in Miami for the Winter Music Conference or or some other cities that that do the the different boat parties around the port. Mm. He he was doing that in the early nineties, and it was it was it was a great moment because these these boats only hold, held a hundred maybe 150 tops so the people that were going were were the were the tight-knit community members of of the scene in baltimore and and, and baltimore is definitely not a major tiered city as far as new york maybe maybe in new york you have three four boat parties in, in, a, in a day or a weekend sure or baltimore had that one per per month that everybody knew your twenty dollars was going to be spent on on going to see a dj there amazing so did you did you really start to feel like you were part of something like a part of a community were you sort of conscious of that i i wasn't conscious to be honest i I had my group of friends um ones that wanted to go to dance music uh see see the see the house and techno scene and then other ones that wanted to go see uh, an artist like frank ski on on the weekends or, or or even midweek there were there were plenty of events midweek as well. So the two different friend groups mm-hmm. um, that that yeah, I just thought, okay, I'm going out with Markwell and Frankie tonight or TJ, and we're going to see this Baltimore club, and then Jen and Ryan and whoever else we're going to see DJ Sun. So it was just a a really good collection of of different djs and music in general Mm. and then um did you begin your dj career in baltimore did you pick up some some gigs there and then get your your sort of foot on the ladder that way yeah i don't i wouldn't say they were paying gigs but i (laughs) definitely started to do some shows house parties and and maybe one or two clubs but it wasn't it wasn't really until I got to Europe is when mm. my real career as a DJ blossomed and skyrocketed for that for that matter. So what what are the next steps then? So you're you're involved in the scene in Baltimore, etc. Um, are you moving on to like uh, going to college or anything like that? Um, or you know what what are your kind of uh, ambitions in terms of where you want to be in life do you can you remember if you had any kind of firm idea about where you were going to go i i didn't i didn't have a clue to be honest my my brother is extremely smart and he was going to college after he graduated i didn't know what i was doing and i decided to actually join the military because hmm. i wanted to get money to go to college um we didn't we didn't have necessarily the the money for for myself to go to college so i joined the military and i got a thing called the gi bill and then i went to university after after the military and not only did i go to university but my turntables also went to university (laughs) And that's, that's kind of when I started to do more house parties in the, in the, in the, in the university. And I had, again, I had this super eclectic collection of 
of records from potholes in my lawn to to Paul Van Dyke. Hmm. And uh, I, we, we would just throw these these all-nighters at my friend's house. And uh, here, bud, here, bud, if you're out there and you're listening, then thanks for thanks for letting us destroy your your college house. <laughs> and um, thanks for letting me play loud music on the smallest speakers ever. But uh, I started to to kind of be known as the, the 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 local college DJ in a way, I guess, in our in our uh, in our college family. And then I decided to to go to Europe because I I got a I got a job there teaching teaching school teaching Y sevens and Y eights in, in in England and my my turntables again uh, followed me not literally on the plane but when I got there I went to the local record store and I bought another pair of turntables and. Yeah got a little bit more into the dance scene because Ruda Silver touched me in the morning mm. was a hit on the radio. I remember Pete Tong. I literally remember being in Sheffield, England, and it was raining. Go figure. And I heard Ruda Silver touch me in the morning. Pete Tong had played that. He said, this is going to be a hit in Ibiza. And I was thinking, well, where, where's I got to go? I got to go there. Actually, if it's going to be hitting Ibiza, I should go there. And I bought a one-way ticket to Ibiza soon, soon after, after the after the school year ended. I went to <laughs> I went to a really tiny island in the Mediterranean. This was uh two two thousand two thousand one, and uh, from from there, I think is when the the explosion happened. So what did you, where did you go to university and what did you study? I went to a division three school called Salisbury university. And my major was communications and journalism. Right. Cool, man. And so, um, so you came to, you were living in Sheffield. Yeah. Yeah, I was living in Sheffield, uh, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, UK. And I would, um, I was, I was teaching these young kids. It was, it was beautiful. It was amazing. I, I really missed that, to be honest. Mm. But I, I met, I met a mate. Uh, his name was Big Phil. Cause he was, he was taller than me was like <laughs> no seven, seven foot four. So that was big <laughs> Phil and, um, big Phil had a good group of friends and I had turntables and records and we used to do, we used to do a, a, a party at the white lion, the white lion, by the way, cause there's not, there's not any other white lion in, in England, <laughs> but <laughs> we would do a party at the white lion and what you could do there is you could buy a, I think it was called a Q jump ticket. And that would get you into the front of line at Gatecrasher. And people would come down to the pub and they would get this ticket and be able to get to the front of the line to then purchase another ticket for entrance. <laughs> it kind of blew me away a little bit, but I got to play music and drink beer for free. 
So it was fun. And I think I got like 50 quid for the for the whole night. So <laughs> it was yeah, it was it was a winning situation. And how um, often did you go down to Crusher? Uh, we would go to down to Gate Crusher twice, three times a month. Um and I was completely out of place there, by the way. <laughs> I was I was wearing the smartest dress slacks, the the dress shoes, a button-down shirt, and everybody else had furry boots and and glow sticks. And let's be honest, they were partying. But I was I tried to just go to the DJ booth and watch what they were doing with i know i mentioned 20 cdjs before the djs nowadays 20 cdjs but again this is an era cd cd players had just come out they still weren't in the booth so mm-hmm. these djs had three turntables and dj mag had just released their top 100 djs and the dj that won uh i think it was sasha was playing that night or playing that weekend at gay crasher amazing and I remember telling myself, like, if this is the number one DJ, and I, I, I'm still getting further and further down this rabbit hole, I should go see what this DJ does. Why are they the number one DJ? And I remember going down there, and not just for for Sasha, it was Seb Fontaine and the the Digweeds and the Carl Coxes and various other DJs at the time. Tidy tracks, a lot of tidy tracks. Um, yeah, hoovers and horns. So, um, this was this was kind of my my church in a way that I was religiously going there to see these artists and and seeing their technique, how they spun the record up, how they slowed the record down, how they blended seamless mixing for hours upon hours upon hours. And I would I would be there honestly with a. Um, uh, re, re, Reba something or another drink. It was non-alcoholic. It was like this this purple purple drink or green drink. You could get different colors, but um, <laughs> Reba flavor is that right? I can't I can't remember. Uh, it's it's quite, quite a popular. Sure. Okay, I'm sorry. It's a, quite a popular <laughs> drink where you where you buy it in the supermarket, and then you only add a little bit of it to water to to make the actual right the actual drink. So. I was I was going there completely sober from the time I stepped in to the time I left. Um, once again, driving my my friends there as as like the sober more. Uh, just let Andrew do it. He's he's good to drive. So <laughs> um, it kind of continued from whether it was in Baltimore now to to Sheffield, and and again I was listening to the radio once again. Mm-hmm. And hearing, hearing in this case now, now Pete Tong on, on BBC One, late at night, play dance music, and listen to that over and over again, and trying to figure out what what was the next cool thing in in dance music. Mm. Was it much of a culture shock for you? And why why did you end up in Sheffield as well? That's where the I ended up in Sheffield because that's where the ELA, the English Lacrosse Association. So if we can just rewind a little bit at Salisbury, I played I played a sport called lacrosse. 
Right. And we we want a we want a an NCAA championship. We want an NC National Collegiate Athletic Association championship. And because of that, the ELA, the English Lacrosse Association, then then hired me along with many other people uh, to come to England to to teach. Uh, gym, I guess it would be considered in England, and then coach lacrosse at the different little youth programs and and, and collegiate programs in uh-huh. in the UK. So that's why I got to to Sheffield. That that's that's where I was brought. Some people were brought to Leeds, to Manchester, um, Trafford. Different different of uh, different friends of mine went to different places, and okay. my 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 spot was Sheffield. And I taught, uh, I taught not only Y sevens and Y eights, but different schools throughout the Pennines. I would drive there, and 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 teach different little schools in the Pennines. And I was also helping coach the Sheffield Uni men's and women's team lacrosse wow. teams. Yeah, so I had quite a busy schedule, and then on the weekends was also the games. Right. So I was sometimes going out until four or five o'clock in the morning and then <laughs> and then uh and then going to to coach um these different uh, universities or or adult teams wow, man. We, uh, we kept it we kept it all together well done and uh, yeah as I, as i said what was it a culture shock for you as well because you know like west yorkshire compared to baltimore <laughs> <laughs> I found actually found a lot of similarities because mm. Baltimore was an in, in industrial town and Sheffield was very industrial also in a way. And both of them had kind of lost their, their, their gleam and luster, but they still had some character and, and just kind of the, the makeup of the city seemed, uh, seemed like home actually when I, when yes. I went to Sheffield, it was, it was still very friendly. I would I would say the Sheffield was much cleaner than Baltimore, right? And uh, that there I wasn't used to maybe seeing like these beautiful stone houses made made from old stone. And mm-hmm. Baltimore, it's more like the old brick. So that was really the the only major difference I think in the the actual aesthetic of mm-hmm. of the city. But it still had that kind of tough mid-tier vibe about it mm. and just before we fly over to Ibiza which I always love to do um, <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about your time in the military and how that was for you yeah I don't I don't really like to talk too much about that mm. um, I joined I joined the Marines again uh, my it was great to to serve my country and and learn a lot about life, a lot about growing up and being on your own and put in put in environments that you're definitely not expected to be put in. Mm. Um, but the I guess the I I always had this kind of in the back of my mind like we're going to use this money to go to college. We're going to yeah. use this money to get a better education. And, and without, without kind of going too much on a tangent, uh, again, I, 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 I'm proud to serve my country, but it's very, it's, it, it was, um, 
I, I don't want to be responsible for someone else's life at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. that's why I said, okay, I'm going to use this money. I'm going to use this time to, to, to be mature and then go to university to, to make a better education for myself. Fair enough, man. And how old were you at that point? I, I joined when I was 17. Uh, I had oh. to get my parent. I had to get my parents' signature on the on the actual entry um, into the military, and yeah, up until twenty twenty one years old when I when I went to university. Wow, pat on the back for that, man. I don't think I could Thanks. have made that kind of um, progressive decision when I was seventeen. <laughs> no way, man. So tell me about. Um, so you get to Ibiza for the first time, you land on the magical islands. What happens then? Well, I, I needed to find a place to stay because I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> and uh, I, went to, I went to a hostel in Plaza del Parque, which is downtown or, or, or center-ish of, of Ibiza town. Mm-hmm. And from there, I just started kind of walking around and I found a, a really small record store, go figure. And in that record store, they, this is early season, by the way, this is like April, (laughs) May. This is way before the season, the actual season starts. And and mind you, this is 2000. So there was still a dirt road from the airport to Ibiza town. There was no, (laughs) there was not this highway that people take now. It was a dirt road and it was straight. And I, I kind of get there and get settled into the hostel. And I decided to take a walk around town and I found a record store. They obviously knew I wasn't from Europe. And I got to talking to the woman that was running the record store. She said, Hey, my, my boyfriend's a DJ. I said, well, I, let's, let's meet him. And that, that DJ wound up being DJ Fabrizio, which was one of the residents at a tiny club at the end of the airstrip called DC 10 and Fabrizio said to me that he had a place to rent a room to rent. I think the, the equivalent now a days would be about 250 euros for the month. And this was Pesetas back then, by the way. Yep. So before they had switched over to the Euro and within about 10 or 15 minutes of moving into that house that Fabrizio was renting different rooms, I met one of the main promoters at DC 10 Ibiza. <laughs> so very, very, very serendipitous and very uh, star, star aligning. Indeed, indeed. And so, um, so what happened next? Uh, you know, did you, um, I guess you formed some kind of friendship with, uh, who, who was it exactly? That was Antonio. Right. Cool. One of the, one of the heads of, of Circle Loco. Yeah. I remember he had a, he had a Honda Prelude and we, he said, you want to go to my club? I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And we went down to the club and they were kind of painting the, the inside of the venue there was a the terrace was brown back then there used to be a bar in the center of the actual terrace and there was a plane also in the side of the club there was a small a very small like 
Cessna plane or something in in the side of the club, like it kind of like crashed there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they they showed me around, and I was just kind of like in awe. I didn't know what to if anything would would come out of this. Again, I I'd, I'd kind of gone to to Ibiza with a one-way ticket with no expectations, thinking I'll just get my ticket back whenever I need to. And I had met uh, a little while later, I'd met uh, Andrea, the uh, the other head of, of Circle Loco. And we just had a really good feeling. And whenever, whenever Antonio had to go to work at like 6 a.m. to open the, the club on a Monday, I would go down there with them and I would, uh, I started to work the lights for Chirilla because I, I, I didn't even ask if I could play. I just took my records with me. Yeah. I just thought you never know. You never know if you get a chance to hop on the decks, at least you have your records with you. If it, if not, then you have, you have a seat that you could sit on for the, for the <laughs> duration of the, of the club. Uh, and I used to go down there and there were, there were three buttons. There was strobe on and off. There was uh, green track lighting, and then there were all lights on. And those were the only three buttons I had to concentrate on. But damned if I wasn't the best light operator in the world <laughs> from from six a.m. until about uh, you know eight a.m. or nine a.m. when the sun started coming in one window that they had in the back corner of the club. It would just kind of like come in and shine a little bit on the DJ booth. Uh, and there was no air conditioning. And the, D- the DJ booth was kind of upstairs where the, where the lighting jockey exists now. And it would wow. get so hot. It would get so hot that you would, <laughs> you would be sweating. You would be sweating so bad up there. And they used to they used to just let me run the lights. So I would run the lights and Churla would play about six hours. Wow. And they would, they would open the doors to the terrace and everybody, this is all the industry people also. And, and, and a lot of clubbers but from 6am until whenever they open those, those doors to go to the terrace, then people would go out to the terrace and Tanya Volcano was then playing out there or Fabrizio was playing out there or, even at that time, I think Joe Mills was playing out there and all the people would kind of go out there and Chirilla would stop playing. And then I would just hop on and I would play another three, four, five, six, eight hours, whatever they would let me inside the main room. But people really didn't want to hang out there so much because the terrace was cool, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't bother me because I would play all of the, all of the A side of the records that I have. And then I play all of the B sides and then maybe even work back to the A sides. <laughs> and, and you, you, they started to notice that sometimes people came back in because they, it was a little bit, I was playing a little bit tougher beat, um, a little bit more BPM, I guess, in a way. Mm. And then special guests like Rocky or Clive from Peace Division started coming down. And you would see these, these other DJs also hanging out like fat boy slim or Timo Moss, or Carl Cox kind of hanging out there in the club, Sasha, uh, James Abila. These, these DJs would come down there and hang out. 
So it was a, it was this, this kind of even keel. There was no VIP area whatsoever. Yeah. Whether, whether you were Sean Combs or clubber that just flew in from, from Malaga, you were all in the same dance floor. Mm. And it was uh, extremely raw, extremely open and free. And these, these, these parties would only go to about three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon back then. Now I think the club doesn't even open until maybe five in the afternoon, but it was a, it was a true after hours experience from 6 a.m. until 3 or 4. There was no even set time when the club ended. It was just kind of come down, enjoy the music. It doesn't even matter who's DJing uh, because the music's a little bit different. It's not mainstream. It's underground. And it's only 5 or 10 quid to get into the, the club. And you got you got a drink at that time. I remember you, you used to get a drink ticket with your actual entrance ticket. So you get your Fanta vodka limon or whatever, <laughs> and then you could, you could, yeah, you could hang out. And it was, uh, it was really, really, uh, raw moment in Ibiza's culture. So did you explore much of the rest of the islands clubs and get, uh, an idea about what was on offer on that side of things and be able to kind of see DC 10 for the special place that it was. Yeah, when I when I went down to Ibiza, the, the 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 very beginning, I had made these CDs, and it, back in Sheffield, and I went down there with maybe like fifty CDs, and I went to all of the different clubs, and I passed out my CDs as well to the different clubs with whether it was a manager that I met or a promoter, and I, I didn't know if these people were lying to me or not. You know, like oh yeah, I'm the manager here. Yeah, give it to me. Um, I went to like every club. Uh, before before Sankey's was Sankey's, it was called Conga or, or Kiss. And there were there was clubs like Pinup and Space existed back then. And these different clubs existed. And I would go there and sometimes even just put it underneath the door. Like find find some type of like manager's door or back door and just slide it underneath there, hoping that I would get one shot, one chance to play. And I I didn't get to go into a lot of clubs, to be honest, because I, I just didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have the 40 quid entrance yep. fee to, to go into a lot of these clubs unless throughout the throughout the summer or summers after that, getting to know more and more, whether it's a bouncer at the door or a promoter or someone that worked the bar that could put your name on the list. And I wasn't really able to experience in that first second year, probably a lot of a lot of clubs, my, my friends that I was, other people that lived in the house, most of them from Sardinia, Oscar and Loris and Donashi, they, they had been on that island for Steven. They had been on that island for, for a little bit. Um, Manuel, they, they would kind of take me under their wings. They definitely took me under their wings. And whether it was feeding me or showing me different parts of the island, and or getting into a, a club, they they truly accepted me. And they, they, that's something they say about Ibiza. Either she accepts you with open arms or she spits you right out. Mm. And Ibiza, Ibiza, definitely she she welcomed me uh, ten times over. And it 
it wouldn't be without that core group of Italians that I learned to essentially call my family that without them, I would have never made it to, to, to this point, even year to year or, or on a daily basis. Wow, man. How long did you stay that first time then with the, on that one way ticket? I stayed until about mid September. I think that was, uh, that was the, that was the September 11th that we, that many of us know that the, 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 the twin towers were, were destroyed. So the, the, we didn't have a TV. I didn't have a TV. And I remember getting a call from, from a promoter called Charlie Chester and Charlie had called me up and said, Hey, I don't know if you can get down to a local bar or pub or whatever, but you, you should, you should turn on the TV. And I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, I, I've got to get back home to my, to my family back mm-hmm. in the States. So mid, mid, mid September, well, after the, the season had closed during, during that early 2000, 2001 um, season, it was about seven months, six months, something like that. Wow, man. And what kind of an effect did it have on you during that season? And, you know, following following your nose, I guess, from hearing Pete Tong talking about Ruda Silva's track being big in, in Ibiza and then going there and getting enveloped in this whole crazy, you know, the, the very formative years of, of DC10, playing, meeting people and just being immersed in, you know, that, amazingly hedonistic culture <laughs> it's it, it was a blur it was all it was all a blur uh, but it was the most blissful blur that you could possibly take part of i know, i know that the what i was following in my heart felt right and everything felt natural and it wasn't it wasn't in any way uh, damaging in, in in my mind because I was following this this life of music. I was following the the, the beat and the, the culture, and I just thought that I must be doing the right thing. Uh, something tells me I'm doing the right thing, even though I didn't have a lot of material things. I didn't have much money. I didn't have much clothes, but I had a box of records and a decent pair of headphones. And I felt like I was doing the right thing in, in my, in my mind. If I wanted to get further in the music business or the music culture, then I was doing the right thing. And what happened um, once the season finished and you went to the States? Um, I guess like, well, I, I don't want actually, I don't want to speak for you, but what, what was your kind of um, your state of mind at that point? Was it like, right, I'm back in the States, but I need to figure out a way to get back to Ibiza so I can carry on following this, this path. Yeah. One, 100%. Uh, I, I do remember arriving back in, in Baltimore and no, I would always been close with all of my, my family. I remember they, they were there at the, the airport to pick me up. And all of them, all of them were shocked because I had lost probably about 20 or 30 pounds because I, 
I, I, I'll be honest. Like I just didn't have the money to eat a, a lot of food. So I was, I lost a lot of weight. I walked everywhere. I literally walked a ton of places around the Island, uh, whether it was to Ibiza town and back and forth. And, um, so I, I, I came back and I was just super thin and my, my family was shocked and they were like, okay, now it's time to get a job and nine to five and start, start working and, you know, get the house and the car and all that. And I was like, no, actually I'm, I need to get a part-time job because I, I need to be able to leave this to go back to that Island because that is, that is where I want to be. I want to be back there. I want to be experiencing those clubs, those DJs, the, the, the clubbers, the, the, the nightlife, the day life, everything that Ibiza had to offer because it was, it was beautiful. It still is beautiful in a way. And that's, that's was my goal literally from the second that I landed back in the States was how can I get back there? How can I get back to, to Spain? And that, that went on back and forth for, for a little bit until I was able to actually stay in Europe and, and find permanent work and live, live in Rome or live in Spain and have a, have a stable life that I could not have to travel back every September or October because the season kept going longer in Ibiza. And it was, uh, yeah, it was always a call in to come back to, to the Island. So when, when did you manage to make that permanent move to Europe then? It would have been about three years into the, into the residency there for, for DC 10 for mm-hmm. circle local. They had, uh, they'd started a, an agency DNF music agency and Andrea and, and Antonio asked me to, to move to Rome with them to help them start this agency. Wow. And I had, uh, I had gone there to, to help facilitate some of the things that whether it was logistics or paperwork or, or even working in the studio assist them with with anything that i could possibly do i I wound up going to more clubs than probably doing logistic work than i should (laughs) (laughs) because i uh, again another another major city with club culture in it uh goa was a club that i frequented a lot Mm. and john carlino they they kind of accepted me also and welcomed me into their their arms claudio cucoluto rest in peace they they also accepted me and welcomed me down to to goa and i I would find myself there on a thursday friday saturday and sunday and couldn't wait till the next thursday to to do it again nice what was it like there it was again a a to z type of djs in electronic music scene whether it's alien alien or or dj red or steve bug would would different a-list djs would kind of come down to to the venue and i would i would experience that i would be watching them uh not not so much like stalking the dj but paying attention to how they're they're working the crowd trying to learn a bit of their craft how they honed it and what type of music works for for their set it was Mm. it was a it was an education 
It was an educational moment. What do you what do you think are some of the um, the key lessons that you learned then during that that whole period? I guess even from going back to the Baltimore days about um, where it is as a, as a DJ, where it is you you can offer the crowd or or what um, you know skills you want to have in your locker to be able to be like the the consummate DJ. I think for me personally, it was it was on the technical side of things how how you could blend different genres, be professional about it and, and have the energy to, to move a crowd and take, take them on, if you will, a journey starting out at from the opening of the night, which is a lost art form at a slower BPM, a warmer BPM, and then working that way throughout the night to, to different peaks and valleys is is quite a difficult thing to do rather than go bang it out from the beginning and and kind of stay on a steady bpm it's very it's very difficult and and takes talent to to be able to have these peaks and valleys i Mm. think is is what i what i learned the most from from the club scene and then on the back end of the, the business side, whether it was from the agency DNF or my, my internship with Yoshitoshi and Deep Dish, learning what it takes to really run record labels and agencies and the, the kind of management, day-to-day management that is needed as well for, for these types of entities even even dc10 again being being sober and knowing that there's different components from the till from the security from the bar that people are also working their jobs to make sure that that venue is running smoothly and many people forget they just kind of pay the ticket they go to the bar they get the drink they dance all night and then they go home but somewhere along the line, there is a business component about the whole thing. Although mm. otherwise the venues and the record labels and the agencies would just dry up completely because they, you got to be able to pay the bills. hundred percent, man. hundred um, percent. Just before we get into that, um, was, was there a point where you noticed that DC 10 really started to, sort of pick up in terms of its popularity, um, perhaps in terms of uh, growing and, 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 you know, starting to evolve into what many of us will know it as now. And I don't think many people listening to this podcast will really be able to know what it was like when you first started there. Yeah, it would be about, I think, 2005 was a was a very pivotal moment 2004 2005 was a very pivotal moment into the club kind of going into this upper echelon for for several years you had ultra vips vips going there enjoying it but it kind of went through an extreme explosion or growth period uh with the with the arrival of local dice in my in my opinion local dice help kind of perpetuate that 
that club and that name into a larger market with the the rebirth of minimal or minimal house music that era i think was a, a very very important moment in in the growth of of dc10 even though they're not really playing that style of music there in that club it was it was still quintessential in the the explosion that occurred you had richie halton coming there to play the sven Voss, the ricardo villalobos's all these djs the steve bugs all these djs then with this genre to many at that time it was like a new genre but robert hood had been doing this for a while Mm -hmm. already and the, the this genre kind of exploded in that moment and and that kind of helped the club also gain popularity and people wanted to go there now all of a sudden you've got paris hilton wanting to bring 20 of her friends you've got sean combs arriving in a limousine hanging out outside the club you've got these tremendous footballers from liverpool or manchester wanting to hang out of the club you've got paul gasol hanging out of the club and again it was still no vip no there was no back area there's no back bar like exists now everybody was on the same dance floor Hmm. it was all one and what did the, what did that do for you um, in terms of did it did you kind of feel like your profile got raised in in that sort of wave of of DC ten also sort of increasing its sort of status? One hundred percent. Yeah, you had you had a lot of Germans, Italians, Spanish, Swiss, Norwegian, every everybody from Europe and and some outside of Europe also coming to the venue. And most of those DJs reflected that. You had local dice from Germany. You had Tanya from Uruguay, Spain, Norway. You had Joe from England and Clive from England and, and Fabrizio from Italy, Cirillo, my, my mentor from Italy. There's, there's this one American there. How, how did this American get there before before Eric Murillo, before <laughs> Louis Vega, before these other prominent American DJs. How did this person get there? And it, it, it was a it was a moment for for them to say, okay, what what's your story? What do you mean you only bought a one-way ticket here? What do you mean like you you played for six hours inside after Chirillo all your records? And it just became I guess it became appealing to people and lo and behold, the, the thing that kind of helped bring me to the forefront was, was my RA mix. I think it was number 18. I want to say that kind of introduced me to a larger market, the worldwide market that, uh, that then started to create more gigs for me all over the world. It kind of, Everybody said, okay, we, we want to book this DJ from Circle Loco. And now I'm playing on the weekends different, whether it's Leipzig one night and then back down to Naples or tours in South America or, or Asia or got to fly down to Morocco for the night. Like this, this kind of exploded on, on my side. And I didn't, I, I didn't expect it to, 
I thought, well, that, that would be cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the mix, but I didn't expect it to kind of take off like that. It's amazing, man. I've listened to that mix a few times over the last few months, actually. <laughs> it's, it's a uh, little, little bit techno-y. Yeah. Yeah, it's wicked, man. I really like it. So is that is does that give you like a sort of general the, the listener a general kind of flavor of what you would have been playing in the club at that point then? Yes and no, because hmm. I remember that the at that moment they didn't really want that much techno, that style of techno at least. They didn't want the surgeons and the downwards and and some of that um James Roskin, they, they weren't really into that sound so much at the venue or even in Ibiza, to be honest. Uh, what, what I was playing mostly in the clubs would be kind of the hippie and halo, West Coast house, some peace division, obviously, but jacked up. I was always playing a little bit faster BPM because the, the terrorist was playing at 120. So I wanted to play it like 132, even though it might have been might have even been the same record at the same time. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I remember remember one time just kind of dipping outside really fast to see Clive, and they they were playing literally the same record I was playing inside, but much slower BPM. They were playing at like 118, 119, and here I am inside playing the same track at like 133. So it sounds different, and there there was no master tempo on the on, on the on the turntables, not like a a CD player where it doesn't change the key. Mm-hmm. So the, the key and the, the energy of the, of the music was still very different, but I couldn't, I don't say I couldn't, I was, I was politely told, I will say by the promoters not to play a harder techno sound, which I was able to sneak in one or two records throughout the set, but I couldn't play a banging techno like uh like the ra mix cool nice man and so oh it feels like there was such a whirlwind at this at this time um how did you manage to to just kind of um i, I don't know if you if you do but you just like we just kind of like swept up swept up in it and just kind of like taking every opportunity you could and just you know just live in it rather than stopping to go hmm how do i manage this Yes. Yes. It was definitely, definitely a whirlwind of, of flying high emotions and enjoying the time and not, not stressing too much about anything. Just keep playing music, play good, be, be technical on top of it. Read your crowd. Know when you're kind of drilling them too much or you need to bring them up or, you know, if you're taking it down too far, like, all of, all of that is really what I was focused on. I wasn't focused on, am I going to become a big DJ or when's my next gig or how do I, how do I make, make the most money out of this? It was, it was just an, enjoy that moment, recognize the moment and, and the rest will follow. Nice. What happened after Rome and how long were you in Rome for? I was in Rome for about a year. Hmm. And then I, I ventured into, I think I mentioned the, the internship with, with deep dish. Mm-hmm. They were, they were Sharam and, and Dubfire, which their, their artist name now had a, had a, had a duo called deep dish and a, a record label called Yoshitoshi. 
that I interned at because I wanted to learn about the the record industry and the, the back end of the record industry. And then I just kind of stayed around Ibiza, stayed around that that's peninsula of Spain, uh, Barcelona, Valencia. That's where I, I would call home for the next 15, 16 years. Wow. I was, I was based there. And sometimes it was Ibiza all year. Sometimes it was going back to the mainland. And sometimes, a lot of times, it's a mixture of the two because it's only 30-minute, 20-minute flight from Valencia to, to Ibiza or a three-hour boat ride also. If you, if you miss the flight, which I did sometimes, mm-hmm. then you could, you could run down to the port and get a boat to, to, to arrive at San Antonio in three hours. And that's where I, I, I stayed. That's where I created my, my music studio. That's where I created my bass. I remember, I remember one, one piece of advice that, that a lot of the, the bigger DJs would give me is you got you to gotta have a bass. You got to have a home. You can't keep going back to the States and then back here and then over there. You, you should create a bass that you could be one location you could fly out of, you could fly back to, and that'll be your home because it'll, it'll be a lot more stable for you, for your mind and, and body to, to be able to stay in one place and just fly out of there to, to the different shows. Mm. And that's, that's what I was, uh, that's what I then decided to do was to, to stay in Europe and, and kind of focus on that market because you have so many different, whether it's major cities or, or second tiered cities that have clubs and, and venues in them that you could, you could play at. And that's what the States doesn't have, even though you have New York or LA, you have these pockets, but you have to take a plane all the way across the other side or a couple hour plane to, to Detroit. And even then you're only doing that maybe once a quarter sure. Where in, in Europe, you could do, you could do all of Spain in an entire quarter or, different different parts of of europe and it was completely different market altogether and what about you just mentioned um you set up your own studio so did you then start to explore production as well yeah yeah for sure there was the natural progression i think for for most djs and i'd been making music before that and playing it out in the clubs and testing a lot of the tracks and then giving them to other DJs. But the, 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 the make the creating of my own studio, have, having that, like I said, that base then gave me the, the tools and kind of wings to, to really focus on that and hone that skill and create the, a lot of the different tracks, whether it was house or, or techno and, and ambient make that music in in that location i was (laughs) i was waking up at three o'clock in the afternoon but then working all the way until seven or eight o'clock in the morning so my my schedule was completely off but that was the that was the nightlife style because you're you're in these you're in these venues until early morning time so that's that's kind of the the pattern that i was on being able to to work all day in the studio to answer emails or, or text messages strictly about the music business or the next show or gig or whatever you had going on 
to make it more professional to get to that next tier in my my dj career and um how long were you at dc10 for in total and when did things start to peter out a little bit my total years at dc10 i think officially or unofficially would be 19 years at that venue wow playing as a, as a resident dj the 20th year could have happened maybe uh if it wasn't for for different things that i had going on with in, in my life that i was a little bit more focused here mm. uh, in 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 the states um it would have been it would have been 2021 actually would have been my possibly my 20th year playing there that would have been beautiful to do mm. um as you know the world changed a little bit for everybody and and things, many things didn't happen. Um, needless to say, I also feel like it was it was time to turn that page, in a in a way. Um, I had been here in the states. I've been working in the states for for different companies like like Shake and Bake or or now Eaton. So it was difficult to to be able to tell these people, hey, you know what? I'm going to disappear for three months. I'm going to go to the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, but but I'm coming back. Don't worry, I'll be back and I'll I'll pick up my job. It it just doesn't work like that. So it was it was time to to turn that page and and focus on the next the next chapter in a way. Amazing, man. It's such an amazing story. And I'm sure there's like so many other facets of that story that we could explore. But um, I'd really like to just move on just a little bit to um, your return to the States, because um, you then uh, I'm sure like with lots of other stuff that have happened. But what I wanted to speak about was the the record store and being hooked into that. And again, like it's another um, a very another very prominent very like well-recognized respected uh outlet that you that you got involved with yeah yeah you'd um like i said i'd, I'd done this internship with with deep dish yoshitoshi learned about the the record industry i had also been lucky enough to to create the baraka music label in valencia and learned even more about the record industry and then I got an opportunity to run a prominent record store, Halcyon Records, in New York. So I, I had this kind of immense knowledge of, of what the, the vinyl market was at one point, what it had become, and where it was heading for the near future. And this, this company, Shake and Bake, based out of New York, uh, run by an artist called Richolsky, they had they had brought me into the fold i had i had dj'd some of their events throughout the the 20 years that i was a resident for circle loco i dj'd a handful five six times for them and i remember one halloween they they had brought me there to to dj and he said hey i'm i'm gonna do a couple things um i'm gonna have this festival in florida I'm going to, we're going to do this record store. We're going to take over this record store, Halcyon. 
and 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 we want to do some parties as well i'd like you to kind of run all of that to to help help run that with with uh the the, the shake and bake team and that's when we we took over halcyon with with uh with output it was inside of output mm-hmm. at the at the venue there in, in williamsburg and they had already had an, an amazing team also there with zara wadolski and and some other very very beautiful and talented people and um mary and and then and, and ike and raymond and andreas they that that team was very special and helped kind of bring Halcyon back to this this prominent record store in North America. It, in no way was it Rush Hour or Hard Wax, but at the same time, it definitely had this, hey, the, this is this is real. They're, they're doing a lot of really good music. They're, they're doing some distribution. They're bringing in a lot of labels. And they're supporting the community. That's that's was one of the the most special elements about it is whether you played house or jungle or techno. Uh, this is this was the location that everybody was kind of coming, hanging out at the coffee shop and conversing about music. It became a hub, mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was very unique and and great to see in 2016, 2017 when the when the record industry was depleted in a way a lot of a lot of record stores and and companies stopped doing vinyl because of the the cost because of the delays and and the issues that that occur when when you go to to press vinyl man it's it's just like i mean i've spoken to you about this before like off off the records but it's like even like talking to you now it's just like i'm sitting here like smiling as you're talking because i'm just like all of this stuff is just it's so interesting first of all but it's also like this one (laughs) i hope you don't take this the wrong way but like this one guy has like done all of these different things in his life (laughs) and they're all they're all like they're all so fascinating and 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 you've held like these these very sort of prominent positions influential positions and like I, i remember when we were hanging out in Baltimore and Washington and stuff. And like, you know, you mentioned, I don't know, XYZ's like top tier DJ, you know, in passing. And I'm, I'm still like quite a bit of a fanboy. So I'm like, wow, you know, this person too. Oh my gosh. But of course you do, because all of these people have passed through all of the different places that you've worked at, or you've met them when you've been playing at whatever club you've been playing at around the world. So it's just, I just find it so amazing. And I hope um, people that are listening find it amazing too. Um, so how have you, um, how have you kind of, uh, navigated your way to, to where you are now, um, working at Eaton DC? I, I would, I would probably say that I navigated this by all, all the things that we just talked about. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a accumulation of different, uh, jobs, uh, if, if that's what you want to go, it never seemed like a job to me. It seemed like, again, I was following my heart in, in some way. Uh, it's just accumulation of, of all that, but specifically from Ibiza back to New York, now down to DC, the, the artist that I spoke about a minute ago, Rachulski, they had an amazing uh, thing with the record store and, 
and festival in Florida, Okeechobee Music and Arts Festival that that I was part of, that uh, that that got bought out. And when that got bought out, those people brought in their own team. So I was without a job for about a year, kind of just feeling things out in New York. And um, a friend of mine had introduced me to to the owner of of this brand, Eaton. And when I when I met with her, they they resonated with me. A lot of the things they were saying and I was saying, we we resonated with one another about music and culture and art. And they said, "Hey, I, I want to have a radio station here inside this." this hotel can you help with that and i also want to do djs and music and different elements of culture here at this brand and i i packed everything up put it inside a van and drove it down here to dc and i've kind of been here for the last three years now working on eaton eaton radio along with James in Hong Kong, who's doing a fabulous job out there, building this music component of, of Eaton and helping bring that to, to the next level. And I think that's what I've, I've been lucky to been at these different pivotal moments, whether it was DC 10, Ibiza, Baraka in Valencia, Shake and Bake in New York, now Eaton here been lucky to kind of been in these situations where a brand is in its initiation in the concept coming up and I, I Marcus, you, you know, me outside of this, you know, I hate to talk about myself. So it, even <laughs> took, it took me a minute to even want to do this, but I guess, I guess people appreciate um, the, the level of quality that I, expect or want to do if it's an event or a record label or even just mentoring a younger dj uh just that level of quality that i want to bring to the table to to produce something that is respected and and is is revered in some way to say hey this was this is this is cool this is great this is not what i expected this is better than i expected and that's that's kind of what I've been able to experience also along these different pit stops of of my career of my life and now it's it's here in DC and I hope that I know I know that uh we are doing that here in DC because there are amazing artists here that I'm I'm working with or 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 be able to be a part of whether it's uh smoking tea or Baron Hawk or Black Rave Culture, these artists that are based here, uh, Carissa Kimsky, Jet Chandon, these artists that are based here, they they are they are really part of something that I that I see the talent in them. Jackson Ryland, another artist, beautiful swimmers, people like that. That I, I I've been in these different cities, and every time I go to a different city or or or, or place like. DC, Bisa, Valencia, New York, whatever, I get to meet these people and I get to view their style and, and quality as well. Yeah. I mean, this is something that 
we haven't touched on but i just wanted to mention very briefly was that you know when when i was organizing my trip to baltimore and washington you were so like abundant with information about established artists but also people that were up and coming and i i get the impression that you you know um, having your sort of eye on the ball and being aware of you know be, i guess being ahead of the curve but also giving opportunities to people who are up and coming who you know clearly have some talent about them is also something that's um that's part of like you know your whole deal and like what you're about yeah i think the i think the art form of a and r was completely lost has been completely lost now we're in a very easily digestible era whether it's digital music whether it's people scrolling on instagram everything's easily digestible and that that sector of the music business a and r has been completely lost there's very few very few people that understand that um, what it, what it came out of from the 60s and 70s and and what it meant during that time to nurture and work with an artist now nowadays people want okay do you have do you have 20,000 or 2 million followers on Instagram cool we're going to bring you to our label we're going to bring you to our agency mm. whereas before it seemed as people went out to the venues and clubs saw the raw talent able to help mold these artists and polish them if if they needed that much work and then bringing them up along the uh along the ladder of success and now it seems very yeah, it's it's a different time that's the best way to put it <laughs> definitely so f- thinking of thinking back over the last 20 30 years um are there any particular memories or anything in particular that really stands out for you as like a life lesson or something that's like you know a kind of a pinnacle of life experience where you you think back and think wow did that actually even happen for sure the getting my foot in at circle loco in the beginning that would be probably the number one most pinnacle or pivotal moment of of my career having Chirillo bring me in and and show me the way uh andrea and antonio as well welcome me into to the dc10 family i think that the getting the the label of the month on resident advisor at, at baraka was was a moment that kind of also i i just paused life for for a second and said wow like this is We've done something. I've done something else outside of this circle of a thing. Now, now it's it's a little bit thicker. There, there's mm. some there's some really good validity to to what is going on, and also DJing in New Year's before Danny Teneglia one year in Mexico, having wow. about four thousand people on the beach, and and playing to to that crowd it was it was a beautiful moment there there's tons of other really good dj moments uh, djing in japan the first time or or australia also some of those were really really good and stories too long for this for this <laughs> podcast but um but one of the 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 moments that stick out uh, 
in, in my career was definitely that that year with uh with Danny Teneglia playing like I said playing on the beach hmm. and the sun's coming up and you you had been I'd been seeing like you know 100 people 200 people in front of me but when the sun comes up and you see the rest of the beach and it's a couple thousand people out on the beach you're you're just like wow Dan- dance valley also another another large festival you you're you're playing these these larger shows and it kind of just it makes you take in hey this isn't a club with a couple hundred people this is a festival with a couple thousand people and you're you're rocking it you're 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 having the opportunity to to play in front of them and they're all they're all grooving to to you so that those were those were beautiful times yeah man it's amazing because you made it up onto the scaffold <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i did i did make it onto the scaffold a lot of the uh the Baltimore crew would be proud of that 100 percent. um yeah i'm gonna finish there because we could literally go on like forever but um thanks so much for sharing part of your story man and you know as as you said like you're not always that comfortable talking about yourself so i really appreciate you taking the time <laughs> yeah thank you marcus thanks resident advisor and thanks to everyone for listening and letting me to explain a little bit of uh my slice of life and, and dance music. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Andrew Grant and Marcus Barnes. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, I'm thinking that you might like to listen to Mariana Berezovska in conversation with Pan Daijin, which is available on all platforms right now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, take care.